You are now tuned in to the Decoding Success Podcast, where we reveal game-changing habits, formulas, and routines from the world's most successful individuals to help you think and live larger. What is going on? It is your host, Matt Labrie, with an all-new episode of the Decoding Success Podcast. Today's guest, a very successful, very well-accomplished individual. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation, be able to amplify it to all of you. But before doing that, I want to make sure, check in on your well-being during this rather trying time as discussed on past episodes. And on top of that, I want to fill you in on an opportunity that I put together with some amazing individuals in my circle that has been able to feed the front lines here in the New York City area. Everyone from the FDNY, the NYPD, DSMY, nurses, doctors, even pharmacists, and so on and so forth. I have just opened up a brand new campaign. In fact, it's the same one, but we raised the goal from 5,000 to 7,000 because we hit 5,000 so damn quick. And we just went through all of the funds over the past week or so delivering food to our front line. So if you want to contribute to this amazing cause, all you have to do is find me on social media, which you could do so simply by going to the show notes of this episode, click on my Instagram or something of that nature, you'll be able to find the link directing you to that campaign. And honestly, a contribution doesn't necessarily mean a dollar amount or a monetary amount. It could simply be a share and tagging me so that we could reshare it and continuously put the word out there. And that means the absolute world to not only us, but obviously the people we're taking care of who in return are also taking care of us, right? So I just wanted to throw that out there, but I do want to introduce you to today's guest who is Doug Conant, the internationally renowned business leader, New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, and social media influencer with over 40 years of leadership experience at world-class global companies. Now, for the past 20 years of his leadership journey, Doug has owned his leadership craft at the most senior levels. First, as president of the Nabisco Foods Company. I'm sure you're well aware of Nabisco Foods. Then as CEO of Campbell Soup Company. I'm sure you're familiar with Campbell Soup and their iconic commercials with Donovan McNabb, so on and so forth. And finally, as chairman of Avon Products. Then in 2011, he founded Conant Leadership, a mission-driven community of leadership leaders and learners who are championing leadership that works in the 21st century. Now, Doug is hopping on here, adding a ton of value nonetheless. Really excited to amplify this message to you. So without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Doug Conan. Doug, welcome to the show, Decoding Success. Really excited to have you. I know we had some turbulence in the process of getting each other together here, but I'm really excited for this moment to amplify your message. So again, thank you for joining us. Oh, great. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to be able to connect with you. It's uh, as you and I were talking right before we came on air. Uh, uh, everyone's schedules are up for grabs these days. It's great that we could squeeze this in. That is true. That is true. So I know you mentioned this isn't your first rodeo. I'm going to do my best to ask you questions you've never been asked before. And we typically kick this show off with a Roger. I, I, I would leave a guy from Queens. I'm sure you're going to come up with something creative here. <laughs> I love it. I love the confidence in Queens, but I have to ask you right out of the gate. How do you personally define success? Uh, uh, it's complex, but uh, serving others in a way that I find fulfilling. Okay. I love that. As I mentioned to you just now, I'm trying to be a man of service. So how did you get into that state of mind when it comes to defining success that way? I'm sure at some point, and forgive me if I'm wrong, if I come off like I'm assuming, maybe at some point it was monetary, uh, maybe at some point it was status. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, how did you get to where you are now when it comes to defining that? 
Well, you know, this, this is a, you know, we're all on a journey, right? Uh, when I was, <laughs> when I was getting out of college, it was just getting a job, you know, and, uh, and I needed to make enough money to pay the rent and to, uh, uh, and to make a living. I, I graduated from, uh, I got my uh, MBA from Kellogg at the age of 23 or 24 at Northwestern University and uh, got my first job working up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, making $10,500 a year uh, and just happy to pay the bills. Right. So uh, I just trying to find my way. So it was about the money. And, but it was also about trying to find a path where I felt I could contribute, add value, and where I could enjoy, enjoy the ride a little. You know, I could be in community with people that I liked and respected and could learn from. So that's sort of how it started. Ultimately, I, I, what I ultimately found out, and I'm slow, so I'm a slow learner, but what I ultimately find, found uh, was that it was all about serving others and, and helping others achieve their ambitions, which is where I got the most juice out of the job, you know? So, yeah. but it, that, that took me sadly decades to figure that out. Yeah. So let me ask you, when was your first experience where you felt like you were being of service? Well, uh, I, I grew up in a family where service was valued. I suspect much like you did. And so we, I was, we were trying to help all the time through our church and, and through in school, through work. But uh, I was fired from a job, which is where I always start out in the book. I was, I was fired from a job uh, nine years into a career very suddenly. And uh, I went into work one day, and they said, clear out your desk. You need to be out of here by noon. And I worked for the company for going on 10 years. Uh, and they sent me to an outplacement counselor. And when I called him to make my appointment that afternoon, he so said, hello, this is Neil McKenna. I'm Neil McKenna. How can I help? And uh, this was before caller ID or cell phones. I mean, I'm old. And... Uh, it was so incredibly powerful just hearing the words, how can I help, when I felt I really needed help. And that guy, it sort of clicked with me. Then and there, and over the year I worked with him, every time I would call him, he would say, hello, this is Neil McKenna, how can I help? And that note that being there just to be helpful, that's all he was trying to do, seemed to be such a neat place to be. He gave words to it, four words, how can I help? And that's where I really started to dial in, and that was 10 years into my career. So that's where it all started in, in terms of giving words to it. And the more I, the more, it was interesting. The more I helped people, the more they helped me. You know, it, it was like, you know, kindness begets kindness, service begets service, helping begets helping. And so uh, one thing led to another, and I kept trying to help people, and then I got I had opportunities to help more people, and one thing led to another, and then I was president of Nabisco Foods, and then I was president and CEO of Campbell Soup, and then I was chairman of Avon Products, and 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 all I was trying to do was just help. Right. You know, it sounds crazy, uh, 
And I found as a, by putting helping first, everything else came along. The money came along. I wasn't, I was not, never in it for the money. Well, I was, when I started, I needed to pay the rent. You had Ultimately, to be. I was not in it for the money. I was in it to be helpful. And that sounds sort of naive and, but it, you know, it's true. Uh, the more I tried to help people, the more ultimately I was able to help the people with whom I was working and we all benefited from that. That's really interesting. So would you credit your climb to the top of numerous companies solely on service? Well, there, there's two things. You gotta serve. There are two things in the corporate world you gotta do. And you've got to do two things. You've got to perform and you've got to take care of the people you work with, right. in my opinion. It's all about the people because as you're a leader, you know, when I was CEO of Campbell, I was, if there were a thousand decisions made in an hour at Campbell Soup Company, I was in the room for one of them. The other 999 were being made by people when I wasn't in the room. And you knew by the time I heard about it, it was going to be reimagined. So it was the perfect decision, even if it wasn't. I was totally dependent on others to, for us to lift that company up or any other company. So it is all about the people. But look, if you don't perform, you don't have the job for very long. They're going to find somebody who will. You know, right. I don't care. You know, I'm a Yankee fan, right? And I don't care how good a guy the guy is. He's, you know, he's got to hit... 300 if he's at third base, you know, he's got to have 20 home runs at least. He's got to have a good arm. You got to perform. So you got to perform and you got to take care of people. It's not one or the other, it's both. And then you can have a really brilliant working experience. I love that. So I have to let you know, I played for a New York Yankee back in high school. Um, going all the way back, yeah. I. He was on the, I believe, the, in the Subway Series, World Series. His name's Alan Watson. He was a pitcher, relief pitcher out of the pen. But um, talk to me about your upbringing. Are you from New York? Uh, what, what made you become a Yankee fan? No, no, I, I'm not. But I have a son that lives in New York. But uh, I, uh, I worked for 25 years right outside of New York in New Jersey. And, I, okay. and if you're in the corporate world, you spend a lot of time in, in New York. And so New York's like a, a second home to me. Uh, so I'm a, and I'm a, uh, I was, I didn't grow up being a Yankee fan, but uh, I was a, a Joe Torre fan. And then, and a Joe Girardi went to Northwestern where I went to school. And, uh, and then I was a huge fan of Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada, Bernie Williams. That, that core group of high-character, high-performance guys was there right down my alley. When I talk about you got to perform and you got to take care of people, those guys did that. They performed right. and they took care of each other. Right. So, that you know, so I'm, I'm uh, actually, for better or worse, I'm a Chicago Cubs fan because I grew up in Chicago. Right. And right. Uh, I did have my moment of uh, success in 2016, and that was about it. That was it. After that, who knows what happened. But well, uh, we're, we're not done yet. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not. You're not. You're definitely not. You got a great team there, and uh, I believe you guys will put it together. Uh, let, let's see if we even play this year. But, Doug, I want to connect the dots here. You mentioned Nabisco. You mentioned Campbell's. You mentioned Avon. Um, and we also talked a little bit about the middle ground. I want to know who was Doug growing up. Who was Doug in high school? 
Uh, Doug in high school was a, a decent, uh, mediocre student, uh, highly introverted. Okay. And uh, a decent athlete, but not a great athlete. I tried out for my high school tennis team. Uh, I became a very good tennis player. I, I, I tried out for my high school tennis team as a freshman. They took 18 guys on the freshman team, and I didn't make it. 18 guys, freshmen, just for the freshman team, and I was cut. So ultimately, I became a very, I became a top-ranked tennis player. It paid for my college education. It paid for graduate school. I played professionally some, uh, and uh, sports was a huge part of my growing up period. But I started out as a mediocre student, highly introverted, and uh, kind of lost in the sauce of life. Uh, sports helped me find my way. I was a big sports fan. And, uh, and then I found a sport that I could really excel at that ultimately uh, paid for my whole education and uh, got me associated with people who were performance-oriented, who were high-character people, uh, that I could learn from and grow with. So that's really interesting. You mentioned not making the team as a freshman, but you didn't let that stop you at all. That's a really admirable mm. mindset and, and character. I mean, seriously, like at that age, you know, people are, people will just throw in the towel unless mm. they have a parent behind them, like pushing them saying, Hey, you need to do this. You know? No, I didn't need a parent. I, you know, I'm a, I love to read Western ch cheesy Western novels. My favorite author is a guy by the name of Louis L'Amour. Louis wrote 120 Western novels. I've read them all probably three times. I can't remember how they end. There's so many of them. And until I get to the very end, and then I say, oh, yeah, I read this. But uh, he had a great line. His line that has always stuck with me, he said, he, quoting this hero in this Western novel, he never knew when he was licked, so he never was. And that's sort of the mindset I bring to what I do. I, my, my, I have a fierce resolve. To, if it's something I believe I can make a difference in, I have a fierce resolve to see it through. I did that in tennis. I was an introvert. So when I didn't make the team and I was all by myself, I would go hit a ball against a wall. And I did it for hours and hours and hours because an introvert, that's what you do. You spend time by yourself. And I got pretty damn good at hitting a ball against a wall. And by the next year, I was one of the best players in the city of Chicago. And by the next year, I was one of the best players in the state. By the next year, I was arguably the best player in the state. And then I was getting scholarship to go to Northwestern to play for a world-class coach. And then all of a sudden, I had my education paid for. And then I was working for the world-class coach in graduate school. And uh, then I was playing with world-class players. It, it all blossomed from there. But, uh, it, you know, the, my first experience was not a positive one. So what stopped you from going pro? I'm really curious. Like, what... It wasn't good enough. Just not good really? enough. Just, I am. It, part of it was at the time, I mean, I am old. I'm 68. And back then, if you were in the top 25, maybe you could make enough of a living to 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 kind of have a little nest egg when you were done. Sure. Today, if you're in the top 200, you can do that because there's more money in the sport. But if you were in the top 200 or 300 uh, 40 years ago, forget about it. So you just needed to choose another path. 
And I had aspirations of doing something other than tennis. I just didn't know what it was. I went on to graduate school. I, uh, I stumbled through that, wasn't great. Had one job offer coming out. Uh, and I uh, took that job, moved to a state, Minneapolis. I was in Chicago, moved to Minnesota. Didn't know one person in the state of Minnesota. Started my job there. Six months in, my first performance review, uh, in the corporate world, you have a uh, your boss fills out a performance review on how you're doing on these things, and then your boss's boss would sign it to say I agree with this, and they would write like one sentence. My boss's boss, with my first job six months in, with his words were, "You should be looking for another job." That was hmm. that was the the feedback I was getting in my first six months in a state where I didn't know anybody. Right. And uh, once again, I took it as a challenge. I said, I can, you know, I looked around at all the people I was working with. I said, I can figure this out. And I doubled down. I didn't know it. It was good. I didn't know anybody. So all I did was work all, all the time, all seven days a week. I was working, trying to right. figure out how to do it. And one thing led to another. And I got better at it. Ultimately, that's a company that also fired me nine years later. So, you know, I've, we all have a story like that. We all have setbacks. Sure. It's, it's how you deal with those setbacks that defines your legacy of contribution. And uh, so that's my story anyway. Right, right. So how do you or what would you recommend someone to do in regards to being able to develop the mindset to not let a setback like that stop them, right? And I think it also almost relates to what we're going through right now in this world, right? The, the world yeah. is pretty much at a standstill. And I personally noticed this in myself, and I'm very grateful for catching it. I noticed in a lot of my high performer friends who own businesses, being that the world is at a standstill, we almost start to stand still as people as, as, in regards to our progress. And we could also do the same thing when we hit that road bump, that roadblock, we face those challenges. So what do you recommend in regards to developing a mindset to overcome that, push forward and know it's just a part of the journey? Other than buy my book, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I, would, I would tell you, you know, this book, uh, and I, I'm not trying to get back to the book. We're going to sell plenty of books, and I don't make any money on this stuff. I'm just, you know, I take no salary for what I do. Uh, what we charge for certain things like this book goes to support what we do. If we make any money, we give it all away. Uh, but and that's why we wrote this book, because everybody feels stuck. You know, and now more than ever, but even before, uh, I run into all these amazing people every day who uh, hunger to be better contributors. They want to do better. They want to be more helpful, they, you know, but they're swamped. Right. They're swamped, you know. And if you're in the corporate world, your life is filled with work stuff. Emails, text messages, phone calls, meetings. You get home, if you're lucky, you visit with your kids for a little while, and then that you put them to bed and you get back on email again. And you think about what you got coming up the next day. Then you probably dream about it. You wake up earlier, you're thinking about it when you get up. And so, you know, leaders are overwhelmed uh, by what's going, what was going on before the pandemic. And what, what we have found is that there is a way through this that can fit into the cockamamie life that we all live today. 
and help us lift our game in a way that helps us show up more as who we are and, and in a more helpful way to the people with whom we work and in a way that we can actually enjoy. Right. You know, when you're hitting stride at your work, I guarantee you're having some fun there. I guarantee it. And, uh, and, we, and we believe work can be fun too, but it has to be consistent with the, the way you want to work. And it has to be, it sort of has to honor your life lessons. You grew up, I grew up with uh, uh, life lessons and leadership lessons from the, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, uh, a coach, a couple of coaches. And they sort of helped show me the way about how I wanted to lead, what they did that worked, what they did that didn't work. And I sort of found myself putting together a leadership philosophy based on my own life story that could work for me. And, uh, and then I found a way to codify that in the blueprint so that if people spend literally 10 or 12 hours working through this process over the course of a month, they can sort of get anchored in, well, how do I want to show up? And then how can I bring that to life on Monday morning? How can I go into the restaurant on Monday morning and be more the guy I want to be as opposed to, to the guy I'm supposed to be? How can I do both? And, uh, you know, if, if, if serving others is important, how can I signal to people that I care about serving others or that we should care about serving others? Let's put up a service board in the restaurant that says, who did you serve today? And get all the names of all of our employees and, and have them write in who they serve today. All of a sudden, you're making serve. I'm making all this up, obviously. But you're, right. making, you're saying, okay, service matters to me. I want to share that with you. I want to encourage uh, us to be more service-oriented. And here's how I want to do it. All of a sudden, you're making that core belief you have that serving others is an important part of the way you want to lead. You're bringing that to life with the people with whom you live and work. And they say, oh, he's really serious about this. You know, so often leaders assume that people are mind readers and know what they want. And that's just ridiculous. Right. Nobody's paying attention to you. They're swamped with their own life. They're not... <laughs> They're not just waiting to read your mind. They're just trying to get, get through their day. And so what we do is we help leaders get in touch with the way they want to lead and then have, help them find a way to show up in a way that works for them in their place of work that says this is important. And uh, you don't need to go get a Harvard MBA to do this, not even a Columbia MBA. But you, you do need to think about it, and you need to be a little more intentional than just doing it by the seat of your pants. Right. I love that. So before diving into the blueprint, and I'm really grateful for your team sending this over, uh, I do have a question that's been on my mind, and sure. I don't want to forget it. You mentioned being an introvert, right? And then, you know, you're talking leadership. How does an introvert become a leader, right? Well, I'm trying to bridge that gap there. Well, you know, I have a good friend who's written the quintessential book on introverts and leadership, and it's a woman by the name of Susan Cain. She wrote a book called Quiet, and, and uh, she is, I don't know, she's got hundreds of thought, 500,000 million followers on Twitter. Uh, 
all the introverts are following her on Twitter. <laughs> but uh, she makes a great point. She makes uh, the point that most organizations, uh, the most under-leveraged resource in virtually all organizations is half the organization are introverts. And organizations aren't built to hear them. They're only built to hear the people that talk, the extroverts. Right. And, uh, and I've got to say, that observation I have found true everywhere I've been. There are people who have a lot to offer who, who just aren't being heard. And uh, as an introvert, I found, in, as I was struggling along the way and getting negative feedback and getting cut from tennis teams and being told I should look for another job and getting fired, I had to find a way that worked for me as an introvert, some signature practices I had that said, hey, I'm here and I have something to say. And so I, and we, we, we go through it in the book, but uh, I think as an introvert, you've got to think about it because you tend to, and I won't say you, I tend to, tended for decades to sit back pretty quietly and assume people knew what I was thinking, which was just a joke. It wasn't, they didn't know. I never told them. Right. And uh, so I think as an introvert, what you have to do is find ways that work for you that say, hey, I'm here. When I got fired from my job, my outplacement counselor said, God, you're going to be a horrible interview. You're never going to get a job. And I said, why? He said, well, you don't say anything. You're so damn quiet. And I, he said, you're misleading people. And I said, what do you mean I'm misleading people? He said, you have a lot to say, but you're not saying it. So you're lying to people. I said, I'm not a liar. He said, you're misleading people, Doug. You have a lot to say, and you're not saying it. What we have to do is help you find a way to express yourself so people know where you're coming from. A, a small example, when I was going for my job interviews, I was a, ter I was a pretty terrible interview. Uh, he, I, I, he said, well, you've got to find a way to differentiate yourself or you're never going to get a job. And I had a mortgage. I had a, ba a new baby. I had uh, our two kids. Uh, it was ugly. And I, so I, I thought, well, how can I do this? Well, I would go for an interview at a company. Everybody I would meet that day, I would get their name, including the person at the front desk at the reception counter. I would get their name. And I would pay attention to what they said to me. And then as soon as my round of interviews were over, maybe with anywhere from three to eight people, I would walk to the coffee shop next door. I would handwrite a note to each one of those people, thanking them specifically for how they had helped me in that day. I would then, and I, and so because for an introvert, you have a chance to think about it. You can write it down just the way you want. And you can get organized, all right? That worked for me. And then I would walk right over to the receptionist, right back to the place, and I would hand them all the notes and say, could you have these delivered this afternoon? Or latest tomorrow. Right. And so they would, do, they would all get this note within 24 hours of meeting me, a handwritten thank you note, thanking them specifically for something that we talked about. How do you think they responded to me the next time I went into that building? Well, it sounds like the you differentiated yourself. The re yeah, the receptionist who had never had a thank you note in their life had gotten this note from me. Doug, I can't believe you made it through the first day. That's great. Who are you seeing today? Oh, you better look out. This guy is right. difficult. 
uh, I mean, they were cheering for me, the receptionist. And uh, I thought, my gosh, that was all I was doing was saying thank you and genuinely meaning it and paying attention to the fact that they helped me. And that was something I could do as an introvert. And I developed other practices like that where I could collect myself, provide feedback to people, solicit help, and uh, that worked for me as an introvert, just like hitting a tennis ball against a wall by myself. Uh, I didn't need anybody else work to help me lift my skills on the tennis court. Uh, this helped me lift my presence uh, in the corporate world. I love that. Doug, I could ask you a million and one questions about what we're talking about right now, but I do want to get to the blueprint. Uh, that's what we're here to talk about. And I do want to respect your time as well. So my first question to you, if you weren't the author of this book and you know we were office pals or something of that nature, and you just so happened to read it, what would you say to convince me that I should be reading it as well? Uh, I'll refer. I was on a call this morning with over 200 CEOs slash C-suite people that I was talking to about this subject. And the point I made with them is all 200 of you are high achieving, high contributing executives, you know, and you're all different. Every one of you is different. Every one of you leads in a different way. And it's informed by your life story. And it's informed by the situation you're in, your aspirations, you all have a different approach, each one of you. And this book, The Blueprint, is designed to help you find your, in your case, your unique approach to leadership and to codify it so when you run into a difficult situation, you've got a strong foundation you can rely on, you know how you want to show up, you know how you want to lead, and you can show up in a more impactful way from the get-go. Uh, I have my, and you can build your own leadership model, which will guide the way you serve others. Uh, you won't even have to think twice about it. You'll know exactly how I'm going to respond. Uh, I have a leadership model. I know exactly how I'm responding to this pandemic. I, I, I have there. There are eight things that matter, and. I have to attend to those things, and as I attend to those things, I will have impact with the people I work with, and it will be impact that works for Doug Conant, the, intro, the shy, introverted, reserved executive. Right. You know, it used to be most of us, and it's, and I've worked in the restaurant industry. Uh, I was on a board. I was on a board of a restaurant company, Applebee's, a long time ago, and most of us worked by the seat of our pants. And there's nothing wrong with that. Most of us make decisions every day by the seat of our pants. But when you're leading others in turbulent times, I think that leadership responsibility, I call it sacred ground. You're affecting people's lives. Seat of the pants isn't going to cut it. You need to do better. And you need to think about it a little bit. Not a lot, but you need to be a little more intentional. And this book is designed to help you discover your intentions in a way that worked for you, and in a way that will fit perfectly into the middle of your cockamamie life where you don't have any more time to do anything. I love that. And uh, that's what this book is about. I love that. So what 
compelled you to write this book at this point in your journey? Like what came over you that said, Doug, like it is time to write this? Well, actually I started out writing another book and then this book happened. Uh, you know, the, I, I work with leaders all the time, every day. And uh, that's what Conan leadership is all about. And um, to a person, they all feel stuck. I'm stuck. I can't, you know, I, I, I want to be better, but I can't. I have no time. I'm not getting any help. I'm stuck. What can I do? And uh, we realized a lot of people have written books on leadership. I mean, there are thousands of them, all right? Sure. And they all say, lead like me. This is how I did it. You ought to do it this way. Lead like me. This is how I did it. You ought to do it this way. Well, I've read all those books, and none of them spoke to me. You know, an element of, you know, I'm, sh you know, I'm sure if I read Derek Jeter's book, something he did would speak to me because I really admired him. Right. But not everything. My life story is not his life story. And so I started to realize, you know, we have to help people examine their story and author their way of leading and build a foundation that speaks to them so that when they hit the turbulent times, they have something to fall back on that they've thought about so that they're prepared for and, and so that they can better serve others. And so I, we, we ended up writing the blueprint. The first half of the blueprint is, is not about me. It's, a, it, it's about my story, but it's all told in how to help you or any reader write their own, create their own leadership journey. You know, today leaders aren't getting much help. You know, most of the companies, uh, the hierarchies are crumbling. Bosses have larger spans of responsibility. They have more people working for them. And it used to be when I started, if you didn't know how to do something, you would go ask your boss, how do I do this? Today you go ask your boss, how do you do it? They say, I don't know. You figure it out. Right. Right? Well, that's not very helpful. And, 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 and so today leaders have to own their own leadership journey, more so than ever before. No, you have to assume you got to own it. And this book we wrote with the desire to help people own their own journey, author their own leadership philosophy, and then, very importantly, figure out, okay, now how can I take this philosophy, which I subscribe to, this is the way I want to show up, how can I take this into my place of work and help them do what they need to do? Because this isn't just about you. This is about you serving others in your organization. So, okay, how am I going to re-enter my organization with this enlightened perspective of how I want to show up? How am I going to do this and be effective at Nabisco or be effective at Avon or be effective at Campbell's Soup Company or be effective at Applebee's or wherever it is? Uh, so, but you need to own it. And this book is designed to help people own their own journey. And no, and quite frankly, I'm incredibly frustrated because nobody else has done it. The people that write about this stuff have not walked a foot in your shoes, much less a mile. They're academic people or people trying to sell books, uh, motivational speakers. They have not walked a mile in your shoes. I've walked a thousand miles. 
in, in, in people's shoes. I spent most right. of my time sitting on the other side of the camera or sitting in audiences listening to people talk to me. Uh, I'm just here to help. And I bring reality to this conversation that most academics and, uh, and other motivational leadership gurus, you know, that's all fine and good. But, you know, you got to go to work on Monday morning. you got to show up. you got to perform. Uh, this isn't for the faint of heart. you got to <laughs> – this is real life. And yeah. I, what we try and do with this work is bring real life into the conversation, not just some aspirational BS. I love that. So why do you, or let me ask this, not why do you, but from my experience, I oftentimes see people doing the whole imitate to innovate without the innovation. And I feel like that was kind of alluded to in a few of the points that you were making there. Um, So do you believe in that or not? Imitate to innovate? Imitate to innovate without the innovation. So you know how we're talking about people are writing books saying, hey, um, do it this way type of thing. And it's very personalized to them and not to whoever's reading the book, kind of what you were just alluding to. Um, I oftentimes well, see yeah. – go ahead. I, 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 yeah. Well, I believe that today's leaders, they need to tailor an approach that speaks to them. And they, and they do need to innovate but it needs to come from a place that really speaks to them. I mean, you know, there's somebody in your life who had a profound influence on you. I don't know who it was, a father, a grandfather, a coach. There's somebody who had a profound influence on you. And you, the way you walk in the world today reflects the impact of that person. Right. And what you need, what, what people like, what leaders need to do is find those people in their lives and really understand how is this, this is guiding me. This person is my, the rudder in my, in the water here for me. And how can I show up more like this person with the people with whom I live and work? Uh, I don't know if that's innovating. It's almost like back to the future, sure. you know, because, uh, uh, what I encourage people to do is get in touch with their roots and then, be more like the people who had an influence with you, a positive influence with you, with the people whom you live and work. Today, that might be considered innovation. Right. Because right now, people are saying, be more like me, be more like Jack Welch, be more like Derek Jeter. I mean, I would love to be like Derek Jeter. If I had his, his arm and his eye, man, I would have loved it. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I think the, the notion is it's not – whether you innovate or not, it's about being true to yourself in a smart way, in, in a smart way. I love that. So if people that read the blueprint can only take one thing away from it, what do you want that one thing to be and why? Now, you've mentioned a whole bunch of points and a whole yeah. bunch of you know, golden nuggets that are, that are in this book. But if there's only one thing they could take away, what do you want that to be? Your, your life story is your leadership story. Really pay attention to your roots. And uh, the only way to get unstuck, the only way to get out of this is to go deep within and pay attention to your life story. Your life story is your leadership story. It is forming your leadership DNA and learn from it. Pay attention to it. Be more like the people who had a positive influence on you with the people with whom you live and work. Right. And you can do that. 
And you don't have to go get a Harvard MBA to do that. You know, you can do that. And, and that's where this book leads you. That's beautiful. I love that. So, Doug, I, I know earlier you mentioned you've done, a, you've done a ton of these interviews over the years. What's a question you wish more people would ask you? Uh, oh, I've been asked everything. Um, uh, well, I, I guess there are two things. One is uh, two points. I don't know if it's a question or not. One is uh, a point is forget perfection. You'll never be perfect. Okay. Just do a little bit better tomorrow than you did today. That's how Derek Jeter got better. That's how Joe Girardi got better. They tried. They were in pursuit of perfection, but they were just focused on getting better every day. That's what you need to do as a leader. There is no big epiphany that's going to come, and you're going to you're going to have something just fall out of the sky and say, "Okay, now I'm going to do this." Just if only focus. it worked like that. <laughs> yeah, just focus on doing a create a plan and fo which the blueprint will help you do and then focus on doing a little better every day. Uh, forget perfection. Uh, you know, uh, just make progress. This is about intentional progress, not the pursuit of perfection. Oof. And and the the other thing I would I I would I would say is that uh this can be fun. I, we tend to get into these conversations and it sounds, it becomes philosophical and everything else. But you have one life to lead. Enjoy the ride. You owe it to yourself. Uh, have fun with it, you know? Uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, who, who was it? Uh, uh, Conan O'Brien has a great line. He said, work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. You know, if you work hard, you have fun, amazing things will happen here, but you got to work hard at it. Right. Uh, and you will have fun along the way. This is not meant to be a forced march and ordeal. This is meant to be a fulfilling journey, but you owe it to yourself to create your own fulfilling journey. It's the only way you can create a fulfilling journey and then have fun with it. Exactly. Is, and so enjoy the ride. I love that. Now, there's three questions we always ask every interviewee on the way out of the interviews. You may have already answered one with your, with your last response here, and I'm really grateful you shared all that. This question can come off a little cliche, but bear with me because I'm going to reverse engineer it on the back end. First question is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh... I, 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 I had feedback from my wife's grandfather uh, who basically encouraged me to give it all I've got. Okay. And, and, and if I feel like I've given it all I've got every day, I'll sleep well at night. I love that. I love that. I love that. So what is a piece of advice that was given to you that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but ended up proving to be true over time. Oh, and I did touch on that. Uh, when my outplacement counselor told me I was going to be a terrible interview and that I was lying to people, I was misleading people. I wasn't showing up and I wasn't showing them who I really was. I was being this quiet, reserved, polite person. Uh, 
and I still appreciate quiet, reserved, polite people. I, I think we have to be, it's a civil society. But uh, he challenged, he, he said, you're just, you're misleading people. And uh, I didn't want to hear it. I told him so. I write that in the book. I didn't like it. And, uh, but he was 100% right. And he was my mentor until the day he died in 2006 for uh, 20 years. That's impact. That is definitely impact. So, Doug, last question for you here. If you could only give one piece of universal advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? You know, meaning you hop on podcasts, you can only say one thing. You hop on stage, you write books. It could only be one thing. What would that one thing be? Uh, You know, I hate to give Conan O'Brien so much credit, but I do love the line. Uh, Work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. That's perfect. There's, there's no substitute for hard work. And if you really want to be a leader and you believe you're on sacred ground, you owe it to the people you're working with to work hard at it. And you owe it to the people you're working with to honor and respect them and to find a way to be kind while you have high standards for performance. And uh, I believe if you work hard and you're kind, amazing things can, can happen and will happen. I agree. I most definitely agree. Well, Doug, I need to express my gratitude for you hopping on here again. I truly do appreciate the opportunity. I'm going to make sure the link to get the blueprint is in the show notes, your social handles, websites, all that good stuff will be in the show notes. So again, thank you, Doug. I truly do appreciate it. Hey, before you go, I want you to uh, send me an email about what you're doing uh, with your community service work right now. I'd like to see, I'd like to hear about it. Be a three or four sentences. Uh, and uh, you, you you can track me down, but send me an email. Most I'd definitely like will. All right. Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate right. it. Have a good one now. Enjoy. All right. Yeah, get back to work. I'm going to try. <laughs> All right. So long. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, from my guy, Doug Conant. First and foremost, make sure you are connecting with Doug. The website, his social links, where to get the book is all in the show notes of this episode. Reach out to him. Let him know you heard him here on Decoding Success. I know he'll be absolutely thrilled to hear from you. And as always, I want to break down three points that resonated with me on a super high level. First and foremost, it comes down to what Doug mentioned early in this episode. He said, the more you help people, the more people help you. And I couldn't agree more. Hearing it from Doug is huge. Like being a person of service is monumental. And the more you help, even if it's on a smaller basis in your household, to your neighbors, to your friends, your family, the people in your community, the people around you, your coworkers, whomever, right? And continuously growing up, up and up. Listen, you feel amazing after you help. You really, really do. And helping doesn't always have to be from a monetary perspective, doesn't have to be donating. Listen, time is more valuable. If you donate your time, if you share it on your social media, if you do something of that nature, I promise you that is helping. That will come back to you. Secondly, intentional progress over the pursuit of perfect. That was something else Doug mentioned in this episode and I realized how oftentimes we can get caught up in trying to be perfect as opposed to what we should be focusing on, which is moving the needle little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit until you have a monumental incremental change in where the needle started to where it is today, right? That is absolutely huge and I want everyone to zone in on that, focus on that. How can you move the needle just a little bit instead of being 
utterly perfect in all that we do. Thirdly, understanding that your life story is your leadership story, right? We're in leadership roles more than we even think we are. For instance, if you're a coach at a little league, right? It doesn't have to be the CEO of some company. If you're a coach at a little league, you might be a leader in your household. You might be the head of something in your community. Listen, there are so many leadership roles that we are unaware of that we already possess. And the way we lead dictates our life story. And that reminder from Doug is absolutely huge. So again, I just want to recap these three things before we move on. The more you help people, the more people help you. Keep that in mind. Intentional progress over the pursuit of perfect. Keep that in mind. And lastly, your life story is your leadership story. So lead with pride. That is absolutely huge. And as mentioned earlier in this episode, I put together that donation fund for the frontline here in New York City. If you'd like to contribute, you could do so through the show notes of this episode. The link is in there. Doug is getting behind it. He's promoting it with his team. This is absolutely huge. We are well on our way to raising even more money than we previously expected. So I'm really, really excited to continue impacting through this. And I just want to say thank you to all that have already contributed in some way, shape, or form, whether that was from a monetary perspective or by sharing it or even making the deliveries with me, such as my boys, Jimmy Nolan and Brian Fasheen. If they're tuned into this, God bless. I really appreciate all of their help. We had monumental days together, just dropping off food, seeing the impact it's making on all of the front line that we are helping. So I just wanted to say thank you on that front. And again, listen, connect with me on social. You can do so through the show notes of this episode. And lastly, if you haven't left a rating and review yet, I'm just going to say this rather bluntly. What the fuck are you waiting for? I am not asking for five stars. I just want to hear your genuine feedback so we know how to continuously tailor the show and how we can pivot, how we can continuously deliver on adding value to your life. So until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.